0: This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org.
1: We're letting words affect our intimate experience. The Dharma comes in words and conceptual ideas and uh, we receive them and uh, transform them into the nectar of presence kind of mysterious how this happens. Intention seems to help. So as we begin a new discussion, please listen to the teachings and discuss the teachings with this uh, big heart of aspiration to deepen our understanding and our practice for the benefit of all beings. This very mind is Buddha. This mind uh, referred to by Suzuki Roshi, as Big Mind. So here's a passage from Suzuki Roshi's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, <laughs> Big Mind, which is like, you all know this book, I think. It's, it's, it's a classic, and uh, there's many pieces as I've read over the years, that like I kind of discover anew. And, like I didn't notice that part last <laughs> time I read it. Here's one that I definitely didn't notice for a few readings, but it's there in the, in the uh, mind waves section. Many sensations come, many thoughts or images arise, but they're just waves of your own mind. Nothing comes from outside your own mind. Nothing comes from outside your own mind. Usually we think of our mind as receiving impressions and experiences from outside, but that's not a true understanding of our mind. The true understanding is that mind includes everything. When you think something comes from outside it, it means only that something appears in your mind. Nothing outside yourself can actually cause any trouble. I think he means if we realize that it's within your mind. You yourself make the waves in your mind. If you leave your mind as it is, will become calm... This mind is called big mind. It, I mean, this, is, this is the most um, kind of surprising statement, kind of radical statement. Zen mind beginner's mind. He says if your mind is related to something outside itself, that mind is a small mind, a limited mind. If your mind is not related to anything else, then there's no dualistic understanding in the activity of your mind. We, we praise relatedness in Zen often, I think. We're all how we're all related, but from this from this kind of deeper perspective, uh If mind is related to something outside itself, that's a small, limited mind. This big mind is not related to anything else. Why? Because there is nothing outside of it to relate to. (laughs) Everything is within itself. Does that make sense? if it's an all-inclusive mind, it it can't be related to anything. Everything's within it. So, uh, if your mind's related to something outside itself, that mind is a small mind or a limited mind. At least not, like, boundless. If your mind is not related to anything else, then there's no dualistic understanding in the activity of your mind. You understand activity as waves of the mind. We could say, in the mind. Big mind experiences everything within itself. Then he says, do you understand the difference between the two minds? The mind which includes everything and the mind which is related to something. Theory what he means by these two? The mind, the mind like space that includes everything within it is not related to any other minds or any other things because just like space actually is not related to any things. Everything is in space. It's not like space is actually relating to things just physical space you might say well doesn't it doesn't space come down and meet the table right. I think that's kind of a funny way of talking about space I think of space is not really related to the things in it space is including the things within it but even if we say it's, it's reala- space is relating to the table you know, um, and the space like nature of mind the phenomena of arising in mind are not physical phenomena. They're actually just made of mind. So, in that way, the, the space like nature of mind doesn't relate to um, thoughts and feelings and all, because they're not outside it. Can you follow hopefully, this? Hopefully, follow it. Kind of some, some taste or sense of it. As in our own experience, as we're talking,
0: yeah. Could you uh, say something about what related means?
1: Related, I think, means like some uh, relationship is between two things. Any kind of relationship is uh, this you need to have two things to relate to each other. If you have one thing, um, and there is only one thing. There can't be any relationship. So it's kind of like, we call this the one mind. If it's really like all-inclusive oneness, then uh, that oneness can't be related to <laughs> to another oneness or to anything else, right? <laughs> but oneness does intimately include everything within it. So this is uh, what we I mean by non-duality. So we talk about... Um, the interdependence of things which is a valid way of talking in Buddhism right, of course um, that's, that's, the, that's, that's talk is on the level of, um, of um, apparently separate things that are relating to each other and arising and ceasing dependent on each other so that's not exactly non-duality it's relatedness it's interdependence so here I I would make a distinction between interdependence between different things and non-duality non-duality means not to so in non-duality there's no more interdependence there's no more relationality between things because there's only one thing (laughs) and it's not a thing one reality called the unity of uh, everything, called big mind. So, if you're, so again Suzuki Rishi says, uh, if your mind's related to something outside itself, that's a small, limited mind. If your mind's not related to anything else, there's no dualistic understanding big mind experiences everything within itself. And then he says, do you understand the difference between the two minds? The mind which includes everything and the mind which is related to something. Outside itself. You can say in parentheses. Related to something means it has to be outside oneself to have a relationship with it. Uh, Do you understand the difference? Then he says, Actually, they're the same thing, but the, but the understanding is different, and your attitude towards your life will be different according to which understanding you have. This is great, I think. <laughs> that everything is included within your mind is the essence of mind. And then he says, whatever you experience is an expression of a big mind. I think that's what he says um, do you understand the difference we've been talking about the difference right, between uh, unity is not related to anything and interdependent phenomena are related to each other that's a different perspective than just one unity two different perspectives and then I think it's great he says actually they're the same thing I think could say that's the unity of the two truths, the conventional truth and the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is the unity of all things, vows emptiness, not one single thing, and then the conventional truth is like the interdependent relationality. And they're not too, too totally different Realms. Actually, we can talk about them in this way, but he says they're the same. It's like two perspectives are the same, because both are true right now. Like here's um, me talking with you. We're at, we're in a relationship here. we we seem to be um, two different, m- multiple multiple people um, speaking and listening, and uh, this is the realm of conventional truth. And Beautiful, interdependent, relate relational, conventional truth, and then the ultimate truth, where um, there's only one space in which this person's appearing and that person's appearing. We could even say that within the space, things are relating to each other. That the that the space, like awareness, all-inclusive awareness. It's not related to anything else. Kind of fun. Yes.
0: Um, when, when Buddha says we we invent the world with our mind. Yeah. How does that relate and in what sense is that?
1: You could say the um mind can have various different meanings and here um, I would usually take that to be like the, um, a kind of like a, a somewhat distorted mind actually it can like project um, project things where there aren't any it can like project things outside that seem to be outside of itself and that way it kind of create things. You could say that that um, dualistic mind that can create things uh, It's one way of looking at mind creating things. Or if we want to keep the discussion to big mind we could say um, we could say it as the pure um, all-inclusive big mind maybe create it wouldn't be exactly the right word but manifests I think we could say. Dogen likes that word that the, the big mind manifests Itself as things. And you could say, and then we might say, well, how does the big mind manifest itself as a, as a little um, constrictive thought, for example? And you could say the way that it does that is to first contract itself into small mind that can project things outside of itself, or dualistic mind. Non-dual awareness can kind of like shrink itself, or it, maybe it's non-dual, all-inclusive awareness First manifest itself as a kind of dualistic projecting mind and then the dualistic projecting mind can project a world of things outside of itself. One way to tell a story. So manifest the big mind manifesting or expressing itself as phenomena. it's free it's free freely able to do that, obviously. Um, and that's why Tsukiroshi kind of in accord with Dobie says, says well, his English is quite good I think too he, he captures some things really great in English whatever you experience is an expression of big mind he says or expression or manifestation of big mind big mind is able to to kind of take the form of myriad things, and take the form of delusion. Can you, can you say
0: that sentence again? That started with whatever you experience. Whatever you experience is an expression
1: of big mind. That's all it is. Mind waves. Chapter. So uh, that's a kind of modern version in, in our modern lineage of Matsus teaching and Dogen's teaching, so um, this morning we were talking about the, the background of uh, mind itself is Buddha, coming from Chinese ancestor Matsu's teaching. So,
0: so if you have some kind of jealous thought or envy or yeah. you know, something, mm-hmm. how is that an expression of big mind?
1: Because um, from the perspective of big mind, remember how big it is. Right? It's all inclusive. Right? It's it's so. Um, there's nothing outside it. Therefore, by definition, therefore, every experience, every phenomena, must be within it. And therefore, actually, an expression of it. Or sometimes we could even say, made of it the the nature of jealousy, the true nature of jealousy and envy is big mind. That's why I, earlier um, we heard that uh, was it was it how uh, Matsu it's talking about ordinary mind. Manzu, he said. Um, So what is this ordinary mind? Um, It's that, like, um, where there's no holy and ordinary, there's no um, good and bad, and all these things. These things that are, like, envy and and, um, jealousy seem like they're kind of bad um, mental states, but actually, from big minds' perspective, they're just, they're not really bad, just um, waves, yeah, the mind waves, yeah, and and we say, but naturally, the, we start to talk this way But then it's it all. Then it doesn't matter anymore. And if if I do harmful things, it wouldn't matter, right? So it's um, if we trust um, and understand this more and more deeply, and and uh, be the big mind, then. If, then the then the small um, workings of afflictive mental states and so on start to like settle on their own. I think that what um, they they kind of settle back into big mind and we enjoy being big mind more than jealousy and envy, and greed, hate and delusion. Whereas if we're relating to the small mind where something's outside itself, that's actually um, how the greed and delusion and the, the pride, doubting and, uh, and envy and so on arise. There has to be something dualistic, something outside for those experiences to arise. So it's kind of hard to, to trust the mind so much. Especially when it's not something, it's not another thing experience I, I trust the sound of the air conditioner because that's an experience and there it is well I agree there's the sound you can trust a sound like that but big minds like where is that what does that sound like what does that look like <laughs> it doesn't look or sound like anything so therefore it's harder to trust but my experience is the more I hear these teachings I try to like open to how, uh, to my life, as through this kind of lens or, or framework, it uh, it starts to become more trustworthy, actually, in my sense. You can't get a hold of it, but it's like, yeah, actually the space in which the air conditioner sound is happening is more trustworthy than the air conditioner sound. Partly, it's more trustworthy because uh, it's it's reliable, it's like it's always here, it's always available, it never will let us down, even when we're totally caught up in something. The space is always there, just holding us, whereas the air conditioner, the power can go out, and then we won't hear that sound, and we won't feel the cool air, so it's not really that trustworthy.
0: Yes. I remember you said in the last session you talked about like the relationship between like what um, the modern understanding of the brain and the nervous system is and the mind mm-hmm. you know, like people thinking that it's um, our experience is the emergent like property of electrical activity in the brain yeah. and um, you said something like maybe um, so like the that view. The, the world kind of the mind arises from the brain but maybe the, the brain arises in the mind in yes. consciousness because yes. you know everything we perceive is through consciousness yeah. but um, I just wonder for you as like a modern person and a scholar and a teacher like how, how do you what is your understanding of this relationship because there's such specific mm-hmm. things you know, like they can stimulate certain parts of the brain and achieve certain effects, and really, you know, fine-tune mm-hmm. study things. Yeah. But then there, so, but then there's all of these kind of potentials in consciousness, you know, like dreaming, and mm-hmm. all kinds of non-ordinary states, and I, I just wonder if you could say anything about that. Yeah, it's it's
1: a, it's a difficult one. It's, it's a democ- the mind-brain connection. I think that in modern science, they sometimes call it the hard problem of consciousness. <coughs> theory's term, yeah. and I think that's what it's about: is like what is the connection between brain, which we're talking about a, a physical organ, and all that's even that's maybe not even grossly physical, but the the scientific evidence for how stimulating different parts of the brain create different effects and so on. What's the relationship of these physical, measurable phenomena of science and the mind, which is not uh, physical and not measurable, but definitely, but it's our experience. It's a more the mind is a more intimate experience than the brain, even though it, the brain is like measurable. That's already kind of interesting, isn't it? The, what is most scientifically measurable is a little less intimate than our direct experience, which is not measurable. So that's one little clue to, uh, about which one is more primary, um, brain or mind. And um, yeah, so I think, like I said this morning, we, we, have to, we have to admit that there's a strong relationship between the brain and the mind. And people usually assume, from the scien- scientific point of view, Materialist point of view, which is, it, you know, most modern science, quantum physics is starting to question some of this. Most modern science, I would say, is a materialist view, meaning like physical material matter is the, like, so if that's what's measurable, that's like that the reality. And mind, we don't, scientists really don't want to talk about mind so much because it's not measurable. But we know there's this relationship between them, and we think that the the material side is primary, consciousness is derivative of that, is the common scientific view. But what if there's still a relationship, apparent relationship, between mind and brain, but, um, but it's the other way around it, that that uh, mind is primary, or the basis, and brain is derivative of that. We could say, it brings up lots of weird questions, um, but I would say, in both cases, it brings up lots of weird questions. Mm-hmm. Like the scientists, when they try to say, "Well, how is it that you, st- when you stimulate this part of the brain, um, you have a different experience of the world?" No one can. They know they can describe that there's a connection between those, but they say, "How? How can this electrical thing create such a completely different experience? And what is the nature of this experience?" find exactly where those meet, that's this so-called hard problem. Scientists, they, they want to get at this. They're working hard on trying to see, explain this, but um, I, I kind of feel like right now, my, myself, they, they will never find this meeting point a way, an explanation, because um, these two realms, in a way, don't meet. like the mind realm and the physical realm. Uh, and Buddhism has struggled with this question, too. So, so there's a lot of problems that we, as we get closer and closer to how the brain might create mind, there's a lot of unanswerable questions. Um, so if we remember that part, then we can look at the other way, the mind creating the brain also creates a lot of unanswerable questions. Um, and we're not so used to those questions. They seem more problematic, but I think they might be somewhat similar questions. For example, um, we might be able to talk about: it. What if there's just the, there's just um, this boundless awareness? That's the only reality there is, and um, and all uh, experiences are. Um, of the world are kind of expressions or manifestations or projections of this mind. It's kind of the classic Indian mind-only um, view. Which sounds, it's a pretty radical view. <laughs> uh, and it brings up lots of questions too. Uh, but usually the questions are answered as, let's keep remembering that we, as you said, we can't um, experience anything um, outside of our of mind, and we never will be able to. All the scientific measurements are um, measured by minds. <laughs> yeah, maybe machine measuring, but then the mi- a mind is relating to the machine. So um, all the data that's coming is mind data. So, um, and the brain, everything we know about the brain, we can see the brain, we can feel the brain, we can measure activity in the brain. All of those ex- are experiences in the mind. So, uh, but they're specific. But they get specific, right? So we could say, how is it that um, that this you know tr- touching this part of the brain creates this different experience? All of that is a mental experience, but it's specific. Um, so could it be that um, that Mind is manifesting everything, big mind is manifesting everything within itself, but the laws of how that works are very detailed and very regular and very um, amazing and, very, and predictable and yet ungraspable and inconceivable. And uh, you know, in the Introduction, the elephant will bring up a like, dream as a metaphor, as a, as a kind of example, like, in a dream at, at night, we're, um, usually there's a sense of, um, a subject. Like, we feel as if we're a person in the dream. Like, we're walking down the street in the dream with our eyes looking at the street, usually. Yeah. Yeah, there's a sense of, of being a person in the dream, and there's a sense of the street and other people that we're talking to in the dream. We're, in other words, and, and then we wake up, we realize there was no, uh, no physical reality there, even though it was very convincing. The mind created both a subject and an object in the dream. Usually we think of how the mind creates the objective world in a dream, but it also creates a subject, and it creates a relationship between them, and with some regularity, like dreams are a little funnier than waking life, but, um, but they're pretty regular. Like gravity operates in a dream,
0: Sometimes yeah, they're a little more
1: flexible, right? You can fly sometimes. But um, often we, we talk to people in in our you know in English language, for example. It's like all that still operates. Highly complex workings of time and space function pretty normally in dreams. They can get a little story, but um, isn't it amazing? that in this completely mind-constructed reality of a dream world, there's three-dimensional space, time, there's things um, function somewhat normally. But, so we know, this is the scientific kind of, like, a scientist. we know the mind can do that. does it, like, most nights, actually, very easily, with no training on our part. So um, I think that's a nice thing to remember, just... That can help us question. And the mind really is capable of that. So, could it be capable of um, kind of going further in that direction, um, creating everything, uh, manifesting everything? Yeah.
0: So. There must be uh, people who study the sort the, of how the how consciousness may have evolved with the brain from an evolutionary standpoint and from animals, consciousness, to human consciousness?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit hard, though, to study anything outside the present human experience of consciousness. We can deduce a lot of things, I think. Um, But um, that's the nature of consciousness or mind, is that it's our own personal experience and even these Zen people like trying to describe their experience to convey to others their, their kind of understanding of mind. But it's, um, it's hard to convey it and, and get at anybody, like, especially animals. Like, um, we can deduce things from the way that they act similarly to humans, but that we don't really know for sure. Exactly what their consciousness or mind is like, without being in it, um, and same with um, primitive humans. What um, this kind of consciousness-only model, um, or especially the big mind model, is like—if we've been talking about it as um, like space, in all intrusive but also unchanging. So in a way we could say, even though um, the workings of um, dualistic mind evolve over time through species and evolution, we could say big mind, from this Zen perspective, never evolves. It was always all-inclusive, vast, clear, and infinite potential. Sometimes Buddha-nature is talked about as potential. Not so much a potential that will change into something, but it's the, it's the Buddha potential was there from the beginning, beginningless beginning. In fact, space, I don't know about physical space, the Big Bang is kind of like the beginning of space, right? But this, uh, my understanding of this big um, mind space is be, it's beginningless and endless. And uh, you could say it's like, in the beginning, there was Buddha <laughs> and, then, um, and then and then a universe like stars started to um, manifest. Buddha started to manifest as stars and planets. How did that happen? Well, there's a lot of things we don't know how they happen. <laughs> and then some, some planets formed around. Um, Certain star and then one of these planets, these certain elements manifested from Buddha mind in the right combination of carbon and oxygen, so on, to then Buddha mind in its playfulness could manifest some like amoebas, and then um, some people would say the reason Buddha mind manifested that what we call life is so that. Um, it could like play with itself, we kind of. Re- it could have this relationality thing. Before there was the planets and stars, and, um, there wasn't relationality. This kind of—I don't know. This may be going too far because this big mind. I think it's not so much that it, it wants to relate to itself. I think that's going. It's putting too much um, sentient being. Anthropomorphizing. anthropomorphizing
0: yeah it's just the mystery but it is interesting that the law of change in Buddhism mirrors kind of the, the law of entropy in modern physics that... change in Buddhism mm-hmm.
1: like the Buddhist teaching
0: yes yeah
1: the Buddhist teaching evolves for sure right early early Buddhism does not talk about this big mind The little hints the little traces of it like the Pali canon is the you know, this early strata of the Buddha's teachings before the Mahayana. There's little things like the Buddha says. Monks' mind is luminous, the same word, Prabhashvara. Uh, prabhashvara chitta, the luminous mind. And uh, it's um, obscured by um, temporary defilements. Monks' this mind is luminous and it can be unobscured by temporary defilements. So little, little hints at what was to come in early Buddhism but uh, the Mahayana. It's what we call it. Maha means great. It's like the vast vehicle. There was this explosion around year zero, appropriately. <laughs> 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 Where um, the Buddha Dharma Started evolving, yeah, totally evolving. And in Zen, in China, was further evolution. And like I was saying this morning, um, I think that's part of the beautiful game of Buddha Dharma and, and uh, keeping a lineage going. It's like keeping it, ev- keep evolving it, but staying true to the, um, even the most original, earliest teachings. And there's always a dance there. And the more far out these big, these big mind teachings get, the more some maybe more conservative Buddhists start to poke at them. And that's what we're about to hear, actually. The next section of this essay, wait a second. <laughs> so and, and, then, and then the Zen people try to defend it. And say, no, it's OK. <laughs> we can say this, but we have to be very careful how we say it. So. So, a little bit more of Masu before we go on to, to Dogen's essay. So, in Dogen's extensive record, um, there's a section in Book 4, number 319, where, um, where Dogen says, the true Dharma, correctly transmitted by the and ancestors, is just sitting, Shikantaza, which... This morning I mentioned this Soto school constitution. They might have pulled that line from this section, this record. Um, so, it's kind of interesting. These are kind of like spontaneous talks of Dogen. The true Dharma, correctly transmitted by the Buddhism ancestors, is just sitting. Shikantaza. My late teacher, Tian Tong Ru Jing, once told the story of Matsu and Da-mei. So now, he's like, just sitting is our way, but now to illustrate that I'm going to tell the story about Matsu. He doesn't really mention just sitting. But uh, here's the story. Uh, when the Zen master, fa Chang of da Mountain, Dame um, is Chinese for Great Plum. He lived on Great Plum Mountain. And he went to see Matsu for the first time. He asked, What is Buddha? They were prone to asking in those days. (laughs) And Matsu said, Mind is Buddha. On hearing this, Dame, Great Plum, had a great awakening. Then he went to live on Great Plum Mountain. And uh, now, um, when Dogen's telling the story, um, that's from the record of Matsu, when Dogen's telling it, he adds in at this point, Dame made um, prostrations to Matsu, and then he immediately left for the mountains, where he spent his whole life practicing Zazen, day and night for 30 years <laughs> that puts that in the original story <laughs> but I think some remember Dogen says um, the true dharma of the the and ancestors is just sitting so he's saying um, dharma heard this teaching mind itself is buddha when he heard that he had this awakening and his response to hearing that and awakening to that which is go to the mountains, sit zaza non stop. So <laughs> there's some relationship between the just sitting and mind itself as Buddha. And that relationship is the, in that Sotoshu constitution, right? This morning we the, the official doctrine of the Soto school is, um, is the realization of just sitting and mind itself as Buddha. It Maybe coming from this story. So, um, so back to the record of Matsu. He goes into the mountains and sits. And uh, when Matsu later heard that the Great Plum was residing on Great Plum Mountain, sitting in his a long time, he sent one of his monks to go and ask him, what did the Venerable attain when he saw Matsu, that he has come to live on this mountain? Matsu says to his student, go, go meet um, Great Plum there and uh, ask him, what did you, what did you understand when um, when, you met Ma- when you met me, Matsu? That's the monk to say. have kind of anonymously, maybe. The monk say, I heard he met Matsu. <laughs> what did you understand when you met him? And so this monk goes and does that. And Great Plum says, Matsu told me the mind itself is Buddha, so I came to live here. That's what happened. (laughs) And the monk said, well, actually, uh, Matsu's teaching has changed recently. (laughs) And uh, Great Plum said, well, what's the difference now? And the monk said, nowadays, Matsu also says, not mind, not Buddha. (laughs) (laughs) Neither mind nor Buddha. And Great Plum says, that old man still hasn't stopped confusing people. <laughs> you can have not mine, not Buddha. I only follow mine itself as Buddha.
0: <laughs>
1: and uh, the monk returned to Matsu and reported what happened. And Matsu said, the psalm is ripe. <laughs> great Plum It's ripe, which means like, he's... Um, we could hear that as he's ready to offer himself to the world now. It's a nice, nice story about testing, testing his confidence maybe, right? Teachings change now. Instead of like, oh, I guess I've got to go back and get more teaching. He said, so I got it. I'm free. And like, You can tell me whatever, but like, I don't need some extra teaching now. You could see it as kind of stubborn. But actually, Matsu, the teacher, praised it. He said, good. He doesn't want my new teaching? Good. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then Dogen, in, the, in his extensive record, he follows up saying, uh, we should know that zazen is the dignified activity of practice after realization. Realization is just sitting zazen. Do not pass your days and nights in vain. So, uh, some relationship between understanding that mind itself is Buddha, and, um, and just wholeheartedly sitting. Yeah. If we understand mind itself is Buddha, then we can sit in that mind, just sit in that mind, and nothing is missing. Because how can anything you be missing? an all inclusive mind another way to uh, speak about missing uh, or to speak about what it means to, to just be big mind you could say what about practicing being big mind what, what would that mean and I think there's something about uh, what we think of as our true self, what we think of as kind of like our identity. And that usually, we sentient beings, animals included, but we don't know for sure. But we, can, we can compare notes as humans, and for most of us humans, we feel like our identity is Buddha calls the five aggregates. Like we, we, we feel like ourself is a body, and feelings of pleasant and unpleasant, and perception of sensory objects, and um, habitual tendencies, and um, dualistic consciousness that knows things. Those are the five aggregates. And we feel like the collection of all those changing aggregates. We feel like that's me. The Buddha taught this, uh, and. When we feel like, we naturally do, but when we do feel like and relate to and feel ourselves to be and think ourselves to be, this collection of body and mind elements, we suffer. Inevitably and and, uh, unavoidably. This is the realm of discontent when we're identified with I am, a body and feelings. I am also constantly changing body, feelings, perceptions, karmic tendencies, formations, and dualistic business. When I am, I am those things. I will always be somewhat discontent. I try to make the best of it, <laughs> but of course, that's what we do. But uh, the Buddha is often saying, actually, this is our, de- our identification is problem. And we could say, um, the root problems of, of being identified with this, this changing body and mind experiences as my, as my identity or myself is that um, there will always be these two things. I this is. A, meditation can kind reflect of like that there will always be a sense of lack if i am inspired by because there will always be things outside myself that are not me even if i feel like i have basically everything i ever wanted there's still there's a whole world of things experiences people um, outside uh, of me, that that I lack. <laughs> right. Does that make
0: sense? Mm-hmm.
1: That we'll, oh, you know, no matter how much we feel like we have, that we want, and we get, we'll never, we'll never be free, especially permanently free of a sense of lack, as long as we're identified. That's one issue that we can never, we can never fix up this thing to have those. Unhappy. And the other problem is there will always be fear or at least some discomfort with the idea of our own death. Not to mention all the subsidiary fears that, that come before that, like old age, sickness, losing our mind, losing our possessions, all these fears. Um, Because this is a temporary thing, I am this temporary impermanent thing. you follow that? If my identity is this this impermanent collection of body and mind stuff, there will always be some lack, there will always be some fear of my own mortality, my own impending death, which is coming quite quickly. It just came a second closer. It's coming sooner and sooner. <laughs> so, so, you so could hear this Buddhist teaching as like, it's an identity problem. And one might say, well, well, we have to have this identity. Isn't that our identity? I mean, there's no getting around that. Let's make the most, most of it. Let's just accept our impermanence. You might talk that way. It's pretty good. It's in the right direction. But then there's, what if? our identity our true self is not actually these five aggregates of changing experience of body and mind what if our true identity is guess what big mind, um, big mind. <laughs> 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 what if that's who I am who I feel myself to be I might say That's just such a weird idea. (laughs) That's so abstract to think that I am like vast space because then like I'm confusing myself with the cabinet and and you and like, well no, there's still this sense of, of individual consciousness the fifth skanda, dualistic consciousness operating along with this body and and the other, all the five aggregates are operating all over the room. The different sets of five aggregates. But what if it's just like this one mind um, manifesting itself as all these different sets of aggregates? And we can be, you know, there can be a conventional Kokyo, and Kokyo is going to feel as if, you know, in a way, he's like this particular body and mind. It's not ever going to like suddenly change places with Mark. And go into his mind I'm going, going to change minds it's probably not going to go that way <clears throat> but that that's not my true identity it's not my it's a kind of a conventional temporary type of self but not really who I am but really who I am is like big mind it might be hard to <laughs> but The big
0: mind has no eyes so
1: it has no I, but what if we um, play with kind of, co- like, relating to it as if it is I, as if it is it is our self. It's kind of how we use this word self. We can explore this more through Sashim too. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. You say the Buddha way is to study the self. I think it's examining what we think, who we think we are from all different angles and so fruitful in practice and um, it's hard to say what exactly we mean by self or or identity actually and dictionary definitions don't help so much Uh, maybe these days I'm kind of thinking of it as um, something like who like the sense of I was like The sense of what it is to be um, experiencing. Anything? Something like that? So, so there's some relationship between um, the big mind, which is, remember, it's luminous, right? It's, it's knowing, it's, it's aware. With our eyes closed, it's aware. This morning I said, maybe we could roughly and kind of sloppily maybe even call it the sense of being alive big mind. And with our eyes closed, when we're really still, like, in Zazen, if we're very comfortable, not so much sense of the body, there's maybe no sight and sound. It's almost like that's maybe we're getting a sense of... In Zazen, this might happen sometimes. We forget that we're uh, like a body of five aggregates, right? It's very nice when we forget that. We, We feel like I'm just this space It's very relaxing, it's very energizing, This may be kind of rare because we're so used to thinking, especially and experiencing this. It's hard to get the room really quiet. But uh, sometimes I think we do open to like, there's a bigger sense of, there's a sense of life. I'm I'm not thinking I am this big mind because that's already starting to limit it, but there's a sense of feeling almost of like, um, there is uh, there is some sense of being or presence that's not limited to a body and mind and, and or just to finish this thought about these two um, remember the two problems of identifying with uh, myself as, as, this, as this impermanent body and mind if we're able to start opening to identifying ourselves as um, as big mind all inclusive boundless um, aware empty ungraspable big mind then these two issues are a little different the issue of the sense of the, the constant sense of lack it's hard to you know, really, really... You know, we can test this. We can explore in Zaza and test these things out. If we're really um, identified with the big mind, it's hard not to slip into into small mind again, especially if we're kind of running experiments <laughs> doing Zaza. How is that? <laughs> kind of come back into it. But, um, but we can maybe... We have a sense, or retrospectively, we can can have a sense. When when just being that sense of big mind, there is no, there can, by definition, there can be no lack. Because lack means there's something outside myself that I don't have. Big mind doesn't have that problem. By its very nature, by its very definition. Can you follow? There's nothing outside it. It can't lack anything because nothing's outside it. The other problem is the the fear of death and all the other problems that happen to me, the small body, mind, self. That's also not a problem for big mind, right? Big mind doesn't die. It's called the unborn, it's called the deathless. It doesn't get sick. The person will still get sick, right? But Buddha the Buddha's body got sick and died, but the Buddha said um, that didn't hinder his, his freedom, right? So, um, they could say, our true self doesn't get sick and, and die. So it's like, what if we're identified with, with um, this big mind as, as our self? All these implications of how we feel, and as Suzuki Roshi said, these two understandings are different they're the same, the same big and small mind right says, actually they're the same thing but the understanding is different and your attitude towards your life will be different according to which understanding you have so then it's more like yes this body gets sick and, and it's going to die but there's a very different relationship to the old age sickness and death that's happening to a body but not to me. Mm. It's okay. It might be cool. This is why I think for it to be really okay means we have to be really, really okay when the body's really, really falling apart. You have to be um, we have to really, really trust big mind as <laughs> ourself. The degree to which we can trust it is the degree to which we will be free and it's not an all or nothing deal I think
0: it's just practice evolves it's some, it seems like a, the, the experience of, of closeness to death can actually inspire this kind of sense of yes, big mind so it's, it's, not, nice. it's not that mm-hmm. we have to suddenly practice feeling like big mind it's sort of more available or something interesting that that's so yeah
1: I mean because I think that is often the case and we might say why might that be so? Um I just offhand, I could think it might be so because people realize there's nothing left to lose. Like, it's all going anyway, so um, what can I rely on now? Not this body and mind. When we're healthy and um, young and nothing in my death, we do we, we rely on our body and mind more. <laughs> At that time, we're like, I can't rely on that. It's driven home to us, I can't rely on that. I'm still alive. What do I rely on? Naturally, maybe this shift happens. And another reason I think I, I speculate maybe it happens is because it's like reality. <laughs> it's like truth. And when um, when we're when we're pushed to like let go of everything familiar, then reality's like, hi, I, I've just been waiting for you, but you've been so concerned with all this illusory stuff of. Your life, you have no time for me. But now you have time for me. <laughs> in fact, you have eternity for me. <laughs> but you probably forget again the next time around, you know, the next body. But I think all this stuff is like part of the. the this whole like life to life thing was a big part of Buddha's teaching. We don't emphasize so much in Zen, but it's kind of like. We have this life, we might not get such a great opportunity again to practice at at Austin Zen Center. Next time we could be born in a war zone as a slug, (laughs) or whatever.
0: So, wow, we got this far. This is the the pep
1: talk of the Buddhism
0: ancestors. We got this far. Let's not blow it now. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know...
1: <laughs> oh, <man>. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs>
1: so um so just, you know, let's just let's just finish off a lot less, a bit of Matsu here, Because um, he's really like he's the mind so of just Buddha guy. The Zen people loved Matsu. And so like the Muman Khan, there's this collection of koans, classic collection of the Zen stories, kind of simple ones. Um, case number thirty, the 30th Koan in the in the gateless barrier, the Muman Khan, is Great Plum asked Matsu, what is Buddha? Matsu said, mind itself is Buddha. That's the koan. And uh ooh. Muman, Wumen, who um, collected the koans, wrote a verse on this. It says The blue sky on a bright day. No more searching around. What is Buddha, you ask? Hiding the loot, you declare your innocence. I think it's a nice um, uh, poetic expression of this very mindless Buddha. The blue sky on a bright day includes the vastness of the sky and the brightness of the blue. The luminosity and the emptiness. No more searching around. That's what you need. But you ask, what is Buddha? Hiding the loot, you declare your innocence. Uh, we hear this as like the loot being <laughs> the loot that you got is Buddha nature, in your big mind, and you're it's you're hiding it by um, by, asking. by asking, yeah, by asking, what is Buddha? And saying you're innocent of have, you're innocent of having this Buddha nature but actually um, it's kind of a weird way of talking actually you're guilty <laughs> of, ha- of having this of um, holding this hidden loot of Buddha nature but you try to declare your innocence by asking,
0: what's Buddha? <laughs> you follow?
1: It's, these are I think the verses are koans in themselves too it's, they determine the mind so then a few cases later in the gateless barrier case 33, a monk asked Matsu "What is Buddha?" And Matsu said, "Not mine, not Buddha." Just like any story we heard. And Huei, uh, one of the commentators on this koan, wrote a verse: "Mind itself is Buddha. Don't seek arbitrarily." Not mind, not Buddha. Stop searching everywhere, elsewhere. Snowflakes fly over a glowing furnace. A dot of coolness removes the torment of the heat. The glowing furnace of big mind. Uh, snowflakes of, of envy and, and um, boredom. Obsessive thoughts um, fly over the glowing furnace. Uh, big, in, you could say, the glowing furnace, a big mind of thoughts kind of start fluttering down on this glowing furnace. And just a dot of coolness, we could hear snowflakes fly over the glowing furnace, is like um, mind itself is Buddha. And a dot of coolness removes the torment of the heat. Could be commenting on Not mind, not Buddha. Not mind is a is a dot of coolness. Mind. I got it. I'm starting to get hot just thinking about um, how big this mind is. <laughs> well, a dot of coolness of not mind is uh, removes the torment of the heat. Mm. And then Dogen comments in his poetry collection, Mind itself is Buddha, Dogen says, Difficult to practice, but easy to explain. Not mind, not Buddha. Difficult to explain, but easy to practice. These are very rich stories. I think we could spend a long time just talking about that. So maybe it's difficult to actually... B, big mind. I think it is difficult to identify ourselves with big mind and let experiences happen freely in this big mind. Isn't it? Kind of difficult. But it's pretty easy to talk about. There's nothing but big mind. <laughs> not mind, not Buddha. It's difficult to explain like Nagarjuna has all treatises trying to explain emptiness. The mover and the moved are um, can't be found separate from each other since they're in, interdependent. There is no mover, no moved. Oh, this is difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but it's easy to practice. We don't do anything.
0: <laughs> it's easy to practice, difficult to realize it. Though.
1: Yeah. This no, seems you can, to me I should speak. Oh, yeah, yeah, I could say that too. Mm-hmm. So it's a little meditation on, um, it's a meditation on ease and difficulty. You could probably reverse his two lines of the poem and find ways to look at it too. Hopefully this is all like massaging our small minds. We <laughs> 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 really flexible. Line. <laughs> okay. It's getting relaxed. Getting relaxed.
0: Whatever.
1: It's okay. Also once a monk asked, um, Matsu, why do you say that mind itself is Buddha? And Matsu said, to stop small children from crying. And the monk asked, what do you say when they stop crying? And Matsu said, not mind, not Buddha <laughs> so. it sounds like not mind not Buddha is maybe like a more advanced teaching in my way, but it's harder, it's harder to harder to explain, as Dogen says okay. um, it's not as comforting either maybe as mind itself is Buddha is like. Give, uh, we're given everything, literally, we're given everything, everything is ours, but not mine, not Buddha. Uh, just like it's not that everything's being taken away, (laughs) but if we stop, once we stop crying, um, since we weren't given know, we're given everything, like, cool, I I got everything, and lots of says, actually, you got nothing. So those are all some reflections from the old days on uh, mind itself as Buddha. Now, moving up through the centuries, from the 8th century to the 13th century, Dogen, um, Dogen, this is the second paragraph on our Dogen fascicle. He says, many students misunderstand this teaching of mind itself as Buddha, as they do not file a file about it. In parentheses, do not examine it thoroughly. So I guess it's some Chinese expression. And uh, But another translation that is, I think, more accessible is many students misunderstand this teaching as they do not recognize a mistake as a mistake. Both ways work there. They do not examine it thoroughly. They do not examine should be examined or they do not recognize a mistake as a mistake? And uh, already that we had an example, right, of like how we might understand ordinary mind is the way. Yeah, just creating an illusion, ordinary thinking mind is the way. So so I need to practice then or anything.
0: What do you think about illusion there instead of mistake? That we don't recognize the illusion as an illusion.
1: I think mistake might here mean just a mistaken understanding of this phrase, mind itself is Buddha. I think it's what he's um, They about. I think that's what he's getting at. They misunderstand this particular teaching, um, this quote, mind itself is Buddha. They don't recognize their mistaken views as mistaken views, because now he's going to get into these subtle mistaken views. upon hearing the phrase mind itself is Buddha ignorant people think that the thoughts and awareness of ordinary sentient beings who have not here it says aroused the enlightenment seeking mind but it's really uh, it's Hotsubodai-shin so you could say ordinary sentient beings who have not um, given rise to the mind of awakening literally uh, are already Buddhas. Ignorant people think that the thoughts—another translation—the thoughts and perceptions of ordinary sentient beings who have not uh, allowed awakened mind are already Buddhas. That's Dogen saying. That's a misunderstanding. I think that ordinary thoughts and perceptions um, are Buddha. Here on um, thoughts is that word nen. Okay, about it this morning. Um, like a, a mind moment. Um, or a thought moment. They think this way because they have not yet met an authentic teacher. These teachers are subtle. So now Adobe is going to tell the story of Seneca. Or sometimes in Sanskrit who lived in India was one of those outside the way Uh, so that's the Buddhist way of saying uh, there there um, there have been a view that's there there are all these Indian practitioners and philosophers who have views sometimes similar to the Buddha sometimes slightly different sometimes way different That's there was a those have a different understanding than Buddha's way and uh, so Shranika this is his view Uh, so so as we're reading this see if you can some of it sounds pretty good to me actually it's it's not like blatantly this is ridiculous from what we've been talking about this big mind. so see if you can find the pieces that you would say are like sound a little not quite right I think it's kind of hard to find those pieces here it is the great road lies within this body right now in the great, great road or way I think. how it works is easy to know the soul discerns pain and pleasure cold and heat aching and itching these objects now um, soul is a translation here of this uh, term Japanese we say Rei chi. It's like, um, Rei is like spiritual or spirit, and chi is like um, knowing or awareness. So, one translation is um, like spiritual intelligence, kind of like that spiritual intelligence. It's being kind of critiqued here. Soul is, I think, such a Western Christian mm-hmm. term, it's kind of loaded. Um, but interestingly, um, this term Rei Chi was used to talk about Buddha nature by Shun Wei, by Sung Mi, and by Korean Zen teacher Chinu. So these really great, amazing classic early Zen masters did use this term Rei Chi to talk about Buddha nature. And Dogen, I think, is. Uh, He might criticize them some. I don't think there's necessarily something wrong with the term, although maybe the the term starts to imply going a little bit off track. But it's how it's talked about. So this, let's say, let's say, spiritual intelligence instead of soul. The The spiritual intelligence discerns pain and pleasure, cold and heat, aching and itching. It's not obstructed by things and it's not concerned with objects. While things come and go, and objects are born and perish, this spiritual intelligence exists without changing. It pervades all sentient beings, both ordinary and holy, or So far, how about in that paragraph? Does it, anything that
0: stands out like, eh, to you? It's still, the idea of the soul or the spiritual intelligence being a permanent thing sounds like a self? Yeah, I think it's a <coughs> uh,
1: permanent thing. It sounds a little thingified, actually. And um, permanence is an interesting issue because when you, when you get into the Buddha nature teachings, there's Buddhists, and we can bring up some of this later, particularly this Mahapari Nirvana Sutra this Mahayana Sutra the Buddha talks of Buddha nature as a true self which I was just willing to talk about it as our true identity in Zen they talk about self in its positive sense quite a bit but also about its permanence it's the opposite of all these classic Buddhist things Buddha, Buddha in the early teaching Buddha taught not self all conditioned phenomena of body and mind are not self they're not permanent, they're not satisfactory, they're suffering, and they're not pure. In other words, they're defiled by dualistic consciousness. There's four. And it's Mahaparinirvana Mana Sutra, a very most radical sutra I've ever seen, but very popular, very influential in China, somewhat in Tibet, but it was it's an Indian sutra. Very influential in early Chinese chan. The main teaching of this, it's, it's as long as the flower Ornament in it's a thousand pages. I've uh, been reading it over the last and uh, it's amazing. And the main teaching is it's teaching Buddha nature, and it's teaching it as Buddha nature is instead of not self, it is self. It's called capital X. It's called the Atman, Buddha but Atman's a name for Buddha nature in the sutra. It's permanent. It's, um, instead of uh, dissatisfactory suffering, it's bliss. <laughs> Constant, inherent bliss. And instead of impure, it's pure. The opposite of these early teachings. Some people didn't like this. But remember, the early teachings say all conditioned phenomena in like Buddha saying are impermanent, not-self impure and unsatisfactory. Buddha doesn't deny that. In fact, in the Sutra, he he reiterates that. But he said, Buddha nature is not a conditioned phenomenon. So it can be self, it can be permanent, it can be pure, and it can be uh, not this satisfied, totally blissfully satisfied. Uh, But still, some people to this day, don't like this. <laughs> it's just so in your face, kind of against these early. Ones like against these early teachings, but this is an example of the evolution of Dharma I was talking about. It's a thousand pages or so. It's, it's very careful to not contradict the earlier teachings, actually. Even in the early teachings, the Buddha says this classic nirvana. Also interestingly called the, there's an unborn, an undying, an unconditioned, an unmade. It's called nirvana. So something that's not impermanent, even in the early. But it's not a thing. I think I think you hit on it when you say um, it sounds like some some permanent like entity. I gotta be careful when we talk about permanent. Even to say permanent almost sounds like it's, there's something that's permanent. I think maybe better to say unchanging. Space is actually unchanging. But it's not like something that's
0: like fixed, permanent. Okay. It, just, it seems like he's making the distinction of the object and the world and the phenomenology of it. Right? Because he talked about the itching and the pain and all those are perceptions. Yes! And but then the
1: objects are outside. That's right. That's what I would say is was, was one problem with it. So so, you, both of you um, took up on some things. So um, I would also say this great, the great road, let's just say he, he's talking about this true nature or something, lies within this body right now. And a lot of Buddha nature teachings do say it's within us, but I think already that's problematic. It's not within the body. Again, it's like the other way around. The body is within it. The body is a sense of perception, a sense of feelings and sensations um, happening in the space of big mind. So so I think if we say it's something, and this is how some of the other Indian traditions in Buddha's time talked about the Atman. Atman is a personal Atman, Sometimes they would even say, it's like the size of a thumb residing in your heart. Mm-hmm. But it's not, a, you can't, if you dissect the body, you won't find it, but it's like a kind of subtle, energetic essence. But that resides in a particular location. Mm-hmm. The Buddhists would never yeah, agree to that. Vajrayana well, Buddhism starts to flirt with that edge. This <laughs> kind of thing sometimes. Um, how the subtle body works in Buddha nature, having the location. Um, but I think, from our point of view, would say the. Um, I think within this body is a problem, uh, and that it yeah, that it discerns, pain and pleasure, cold and itch, aching and itching. I would I would hear that it discerns them as objects. If it actually just is manifesting pain and pleasure and these things within itself. It's kind of the way I'm seeing big mind. It's not relating to them outside itself. Uh, while things come and go, objects are born and die, the spiritual intelligence exists without changing, which again sounds like could easily be seen as some sort of permanent entity. Now, what about the space of Buddha-nature? Um, being unchanging
0: this is these are solid points it's, it's tough because it feels like even in, in our earlier conversations about Big Mind that we were talking about Big Mind in this kind of way uh huh well I think it's, I think that's why
1: some of it is kind of okay it's not, it's not to my ears it's not way out there and we'll hear some Zen views below that are also critiqued but I think not completely wrong just we have to be very careful with the language. I think also to say the soul exists without changing. That word exists is a kind of uh, uh, alert, a red alert, <laughs> an alarm <long> word.
0: Exists. <laughs> the time,
1: the time alarm goes off.
0: <laughs>
1: The Buddha nature sometimes says it's not exactly that it exists, but not exactly that it doesn't exist either. It just doesn't fit into those categories. 'Cause usually we're talking about we're talking about things existing. Exist as I understand the English word exist usually I think means to um, to stand out. The eggs is like out, like exit. And exist is like stand. So like usually like this want exists means it stands out from the things around it. It exists on its own. I guess a nice etymology whether it's true or not of the English word and Buddha nature is not like that right? it doesn't stand out as something other than other things so if we use exist in that way I would say it doesn't exist like that but to say that it's nothing that sense of non-existence is like it's nothing the thing about it, it we can't quite say it's nothing because it's luminous we don't, we don't say life, it's nothing. Life's a kind of a really nice metaphor, right? Because it's not exactly that it exists as an entity, but it's something that doesn't exist.
0: But here, Shrenica says it exists. Yeah. Um, how does reincarnation tie into this concept? Because it sounds like he's leaving that open. Well, he talks there's about it here, right? Okay. He, this whole
1: paragraph is, there's quite a bit about the reincarnation idea here. Let's keep going through it, oh, sure. see how he, how he puts it in Kamadhan. Shrenika, this is. I think it pervades all sentient beings, both ordinary and sacred. I'll sign off on that line of Shrenika, Buddha nature, big mind. Although there are flowers of emptiness, which is a, in any way of saying illusions, like cataracts in the eye. So there's illusions which are false reality. As soon as an embracing wisdom appears, even for a moment, things disappear and objects perish. It's sounds somewhat, somewhat okay to say that when you when you you hear Zen statements like this, when you, if you realize big mind, um, then. These um, illusions vanish into it. Um, the soul, its spiritual intelligence, the original nature alone, it's clearly permanent. It's a little bit hard edged with the permanent thing. <laughs> when the body is broken, the soul comes out of it unbroken. It's just like the owner of a house on fire who comes out of it safely. So, this is, I think, the reincarnation part. The body is broken, the spiritual intelligence comes out unbroken, like the owner of a house, it comes out. So, um, that way of talking, the Buddha should talk that way. Uh, The Buddha, of course, does teach rebirth, but not as some entity. This really makes it sound like there's an entity that's like a soul within us that then, when we die it leaves and is reborn somewhere else. And there were, of course, Indian philosophies that talked that way. The Buddha, speaking of rebirth, is quite subtle. saying there's no separate separate entity, separate self, but, um, but there's cause and effect, karmic cause and effect. In this life, there's no separate self in this life, but... Um, we wake up feeling to be the same person that we went to sleep as, right? And we're the same. We feel as if there's effects playing out in our life now from things we did this morning. Like what we had for... If we had too many prunes for breakfast, <laughs> there'd be effects in the afternoon. <laughs> there's no self that's continuing um, through there, right? But there's cause there's, there's a per, there's a so-called person body and mind, temporary body and mind, arising now dependent on this morning's body and mind. There's a relationship, a dependent relationship between this afternoon's and this morning's. Does that make sense? That there's, you can have a dependent relationship between this afternoon's person, body and mind, conventional person, and this morning's, with no entity that's continuing through them. We're putting aside the big mind
0: for the moment. Because there's a Suzuki Roshi quote that has come up a couple of times recently where it says, strictly speaking, there is no relationship between who you were a minute ago and who you are now." <laughs> so this is the kind of hard edge of this.
1: Interesting. Yeah, um, yeah that would be interesting to see a lot of your context here. Yeah. Uh, uh, to me, I would say, like, um, especially if we're using the word relationship, mm-hmm. I, would, I would say, like, there's a, um, there's a relation, a relationship is is very amorphous thing. Just like a relationship between people. Like what is that relationship? You can't get a hold of it, right? Just like the relationship between this afternoon's person and this morning's. It's not a connection. I think if we say, there's no, con- I would say strictly speaking, there's no connection between this person and that and it is. But relationship is, is um, just cause and effect. Yeah, it's interesting, this is a gear. Yeah, know. I yeah. Um, it's in the realm of, and, I mean, he just talks about the mm. getting a
0: koan, mm. the firewood and ash. Mm. Mm. Okay, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Are, I mean, eliminating both, I think. There you he go. He does say that uh, in that same article, right. he says the opposite. And then he goes around and says, actually, there's no relationship. Well, and I think, I think that's sort of what we're saying, is like, it, it's sort of um, the two truths or whatever. It's sort of a perspective.
1: Gento Koan is definitely has, is trying to bring up these two sides. Yeah. You know, his um, uh, Does not become ash. It's not become ash. Each thing abiding in its Dharma position is independent. Right? It doesn't include past and future. It's right. just a way of... It's this kind of... Um, Mm-hmm. You know, Chinese and Zen way of talking about um, things in a new creative way, like things just flashing into existence. I think it's kind of experiential point of view, just abiding in the Dharma position. And from a more philosophical point of view, where we're looking at the, at the flow of time, then we say it's dependent on the past and future. And I think Gender Koan kind of brings mm-hmm. up both sides. you know, two truths. So, so that's the Buddha's, Buddha's rebirth story, is, is talking more about that conventional sense of um, uh, sequence and what we call time. Uh, and, uh, and so and the karmic effects of our intentional actions have a lot to do with, like we intended to eat that many fruit prunes. <laughs> we chose to, and now the effect karmic effect <laughs> comes in that for And so that's you know very roughly it's kinda of how like karma karma works without there being an individual entity of a person. It's the cause and effect, right? And that um, in the Buddhist says and then you know at death, this cause and effect is this law of dependent arising and it doesn't get like this law doesn't get broken by measly things like death. <laughs> like uh, you know there's still there's an effect of uh, the last moment because there were causes still left in a in a, in a sentient being that thinks of themselves as a separate person they have they're still producing karma and so if they die when they've, there's some karmic um uh, there's karmic activities that haven't come to effect they have to come to effect and we're not talking about the physical ones, we're talking about mind effects. So so in order I hear the teaching in order to make the system of dependent co-arising work and be really like kind of like nice type logic, Buddha Buddha's really a great logician. Like what we need and also the teaching of rebirth was already happening, so it wasn't so far out to say that. But now there's no permanent entity, there's just an effect on the causes from the previous life they need to come to effect a body is needed. So it gets a little tricky to talk about, well, how is that stream of cause and effect um, link up with a body? It's hard to talk about that without sounding like (laughs) Shrinikha. And Buddhists spend a lot lot of effort trying to talk about it. Um, Rebirth linking consciousness and so on. But the main point is that there's not a continuous thread it's, it's always cause and effect there's a sutra where in the Pali Canon, where the uh, monk comes to the Buddha it's sutra 38 in the middle of the sayings and and, uh, and monk says uh, um, as I understand what the Buddha says if this this consciousness goes it's not a, an Atman, but this consciousness goes from life to life Reborn from life to life, and the Buddha says, "Don't say that. It's not what I said." Although often it gets interpreted like this, so this is a, a subtle sutra, and uh, it's because it's so subtle, the Buddha can't explain exactly. After this, after he says, "I don't say that it's the same consciousness," because consciousness is dualistic consciousness; it's moments arising and ceasing, so it's not a stream, and and uh, I think the monk asks, well, what do you say then? You teach um, you teach rebirth dependent on previous karma. And the Buddha says, I teach dependent on ignorance, karma formations arise, dependent on karma formations, consciousness arises, dependent on consciousness, the six senses arise, this twelve fold chain of causation. And he kind of mysteriously just puts it out there his usual sort of party line full chain of causation. But I think that is it's a nice meditation on rebirth. That's part of what the Twelve platoon is about. So, um, if we if we bring in the big mind into the story, that wasn't around in those early days. How does that fit into the um to the rebirth story? I have not heard this um fleshed out, you know. In the, in the classic Buddhist texts actually the Buddha nature texts that not really talk about universe. but um, I, um, I would understand it as kind of like I think maybe what, what Suzuki Roshi is trying to get at when he's got this essay called Nirvana, the Waterfall where he talks about we're like this river or actually our true nature is like this river and then our individual life he's at Yosemite watching the Waterfall our life is like when it goes over the edge and it gets divided into all these drops. And we're like one our lifespan of 80-something year or whatever. It's like this drop. And then it returns to the stream at the bottom. Which is, from an early Buddhist point of view, that would be really heretical, actually. Because <laughs> it t- sounds like we are this flowing stream. Just like the monk asked, them. is it this consciousness? It's reborn. no, I, there's no thing that's reborn. Um, but from a Buddha nature perspective, I think you could say it's like like this river that then, um, flowing river or an ocean of Buddha nature. I like the image of Big Mind is like this ocean that um, has all these whirlpools. And all of us are like whirlpools in the ocean. Whirlpool is like a cause and effect series, it's set in motion, and it's having effects, and it's interacting with the other whirlpools. All the whirlpools are interdependent, but the ocean of Buddha nature is just oneness, right? The nature of all the whirlpools is one ocean. And then when a whirlpool um, um, comes to an end, at the end of our human life, the um, the kind of movement in the water doesn't just come to an end it's like that particular whirlpool sort of like turns into another whirlpool the energy of that whirlpool the effects in motion by that whirlpool turn into another one and now it's like, this is a different whirlpool but it's made of the same ocean like as we return into the ocean but um, but until there's no more rebirth which is kind of the early Buddhist thing of like We're practicing to not be another whirlpool, (laughs) to not come back into some sonic whirlpoolness, is the kind of early Buddhism goal. You could say there's no more karmic effects. Um, That's cessation, it was called in early Buddhism. But from a Buddha nature perspective, we could say it's dissolving into the Dharmakaya Buddha, boundless, unchanging.
0: Inconceivable. That's a great metaphor because the whirlpool is arising out of the motion of the ocean. Yeah. Right? Just yeah. like, mm-hmm. but you can't really point it. There's nothing there. You can't point to the whirlpool except by the movement yeah. of the yeah. bigger thing. But it's a particular whirlpool that has a particular
1: lifespan and it's influenced by the other whirlpools. And, um, and, the, and you could even say the water that makes up that whirlpool is being reborn <laughs> as another whirlpool. But uh, without there being saying it's a, it's an entity that's being reborn. This water in this metaphor is just like spacious awareness, all pervading, ungraspable spacious <coughs> awareness. That's not an entity. So even Atman, like I say you know, this Paranirvana Sutra uses the Buddha uses the word Atman for Buddha nature and um, and I'm reading this book that I made through yet at called um, Atman and Raman in early Buddhism and uh, very interesting and, <laughs> and there's several other articles like he's saying the Buddha was never actually denying a universal Atman he what he was denying was a personal Atman and uh um, Advaita Vedanta, for example, doesn't teach a personal Atman. They teach very similar to Buddha nature and they say they're very influenced by Mahayana Buddhist teachings of Yogacara and Buddha nature. Almost the same. And then people say, but a, like, it's, it's a Buddha alarm. Beep, mm-hmm. beep, word Atman. Beep, beep, beep. Mm-hmm. Like, Advaita Vedanta. <laughs> Whereas actually, I, I love just I love Buddhist philosophy and all these Indian teachings. So you you really like as you get into the nuances of these things, you um, there's so so much misunderstanding, and these teachings are so subtle. I think, for example, Advaita, I Advaita, mean non duo Vedanta, very similar to to and Buddhism. if you take those two aspects of these traditions? You probably could find differences, but they're very slight. They're I mean, beautiful teachings. So, um, uh, so here, Shrenika is saying, when the body's broken, the soul comes out of it unbroken. It's like the owner of a house and fire comes out of it safely. Uh, we could tr- try to interpret it in the Buddhist way, but um, it sounds too much like, the soul is in the body and it's something that comes out of it. The, the Buddhists are going to go for it. What is luminous is called the nature of an awakened or wise person, a Buddha. I'll, I'll sign off on that sentence. <laughs> this is awakening. Self and other equally possess this nature. Both enlightenment and illusion are connected with it. Well, all, that whole paragraph sounds... I think, okay, to me. When we talk about having Buddha nature, it's already like, Dogen didn't like to even say all beings have Buddha nature, although the Buddhist tradition uses that language a lot. I think Dogen was trying to refine it and say all beings are Buddha nature, just to make sure it's not like something that we have. All sentient beings, in their totality, are Buddha nature. Dogen famously says. It? Like saying all
0: whirlpools are water. Yeah,
1: yeah, hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever things or objects may be, the soul is different from them unchanged for eons. The objects that exist right now are real only if the soul abides in them. So even to say that the, um, the objects are completely different. Is already a little bit off. And this is like, like with the mirror, the images in the mirror. The mirror of uh, Buddha nature is not completely different than the images of things changing on the surface of the mirror. So we can talk about the images in the mirror differently, but the nature of the images is the mirror. So if you try to separate the phenomenal world or the body from the mind too much, um, it's problematic get into later, too. Uh, it's, but yet, we can talk about these conventional appearances of body and, and the true, unchanging nature that's manifest in the body. You hear that kind of thing sometimes in Buddhism. Some people, that's already going too far. But early Buddhists would already say, this whole thing is way way out there like, <laughs> this is not Buddhism anymore Boom. Mahayana and Zen to go there to carefully go into this territory uh, and um, the soul abiding in things is, sounds kind of problematic right? as these objects arise from the soul, the original nature they are true reality if we say these objects arise from to from big mind original nature they are true reality. I think that could be okay. Their nature, their true nature, is reality. That's why we can say the the nature of samsara is the reality of nirvana. Uh, all, um, but they're not permanent. They exist and then disappear. As the soul intuitively knows bright and dark, it's called a knowing spirit. Again, I think we can get into it. Does it know bright and dark as objects, objectively? It's It's not dualistic consciousness. It's also called true self, the source of awakening true nature, true body. To realize such a true nature is described as returning to permanence. This soul is called a great being, a great sattva, a great person that returns to reality. I think great being, great person is a little bit off. But poetically, Zen people say this comes in all the time. Like um, Linji says, there's a true person of no position moving in and out through the portals of your face. If you haven't yet seen him, look! (laughs) So, I'm talking about Buddha nature. But some people would say, I've even read articles saying, that kind of teaching of Linji is like totally not Buddhist. Linji is one of the greatest Zen ancestors of all time. So, I've read read articles too. There's a whole realm of articles that say Zen is not Buddhism. If you want to get into this, there's a book called Pruning the Bodhi Tree that's all about this scholarly essays, and they're kind of heavy-duty, but they're they're getting some nice stuff. It's all about this conversation, in fact, all about Buddha nature as a kind of Atman type of thing, and this debate within modern Japanese Buddhism scholars um, where half say Zen is not a Buddhist teaching because it goes too far in this direction and Dogen is like walks a tightrope some people say Dogen like this essay I think Dogen's trying to walk a tightrope playfully so some say he falls on one side or the other I say it's Buddhism <laughs> but it's you know a Theravada orthodox Theravada we just have some problems with some Zen stuff I think uh, so, after such realization, Shrenika says, the soul does not transmigrate in birth and death. It enters the ocean of true nature of no birth and death. There's no reality other than this. So, again, from, this is kind of how we were just talking. From a Buddha nature perspective, if um, the Buddha nature perspective would say most sentient beings, we still have karma to work out, so we're going to be born as another whirlpool. But if you realize, this is early and late Buddhism, if you realize complete awakening in this life, there's no more rebirth as a whirlpool. And the early Buddhist thing is like, cool, no more, we call it cessation, we're done. The Mahayana version, instead of cessation, we call it Dharmakaya, all pervading. Dharmakaya Buddha that manifests infinite nirmanakaya bodies to benefit beings throughout the universe for eternity <laughs> that's like a very different story that's, the bodhisattva vow is sometimes a little contradictory in the am because sometimes it, bodhisattva vows I vow not to become a Buddha um, until all beings are fully awakened Right, I want to keep coming back into samsara and sometimes it's, Buddha's way is unsurpassable I vow to become it as quickly as possible because then as a Dharmakaya i say I can really benefit um, even more than a Bodhisattva in a samsara so wh- which, do, which program do you sign up for? <laughs> <laughs> they're both pretty good uh, no complaints about either one even the the lesser vehicle early Buddhist programs pretty good but you can see how that one that's a big I think a big change in the Mahayana is that early one is kind of like um, everyone for himself right. let's, I'm, I'm a whirlpool I'm going to stop and that's the end and like I'm going to while I'm still a whirlpool I'll help all you try to stop too and like let's try to all stop <laughs> and once we're done that brother sister um, finding your cessation too you can see how that's that is kind of the teaching of like, Buddhism, but it's awesome teaching of like total liberation for oneself and the Mahayanas already people started feeling funny about that as you can imagine some of you might feel funny even I think modern Vipassana people might feel funny about it uh, so and, so the bodhisattva thing is so beautiful, right? Like, the bodhisattva vow, I think it gets sometimes misunderstood in modern times. i my understanding, the true bodhisattva vow, a bodhisattva has this realization of Buddha nature, or emptiness, very deeply, so that's why they're willing to come back as many times as possible into this messy, suffering world. I think we often interpret it as like, I don't mind the messiness, messiness is cool too, but these bodhisattvas want to be like really, really free and really, really benefit to to benefit others most deeply they have to be really free if they're just like wallowing in the mess the classic thing is it's not going to be so helpful they can be really free but then get up to just the point just before Buddha (laughs) and then choose and they get to choose where they come back what family they're born into Tibetans are into this private they have to be very advanced to, to like not be born due to karma but be born due to vow right it's the bodhisattva thing and uh, and because they realize it's all like a dream that's how they can do it of course when they're born young in the next life they forget a lot of that a lot of what they learned <laughs> but um, the stories is that they Remember more quickly. <laughs> <laughs> they can, just, they, uh, and we see there's some, like, some of these Zen ancestors, they like, have. they're like teaching this stuff when they're like years old and stuff, so I don't know how that happens. Uh, anyway, some choose to come back like that, intentionally and freely come back, and, um, to benefit, and some would, would um, it's kind of like, I think I'm stuck in my on a choice. <laughs> some would be like, actually, if you get to that point where you're like right on the edge, some maybe, Edge of Buddha, Tenth, Bumi Bodhisattva. Like, I, my, my just like, my personality is like, I want to, I like, I like the movie. Right, let's come back and do the movie some more. And, and some people are like, uh, yeah, the movie's been nice for, for several billion lifetimes, but like, I'm curious about the Dharmakaya thing, so like... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think at this point, I think maybe like, it's really about... It's not curiosity, I think it's... It's it's, at this point, there's nothing but like total love and compassion. And certain beings are gonna like do the bodhisattva thing. Uh, There's no self-concern. Even curiosity is a little too self-concerned. It's just like benefit this is my story, you know. In the Dhammakai, like, I really just have this subtle sense that, like, um, there's a Buddha realm that needs a, a Buddha in a, some other universe. And, um, and like, uh, I'll go there. These are the awesome stories of the Mahayana. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: it's getting late. we to lose this section.
1: When true nature is not revealed, the three realms and the six paths emerge one after another. That's what we about. The three realms is all these, you know, Indian Buddhist cosmology, all types of sentient beings, and the six realms are all types of sentient beings and we go and animals, and hellicons, and humans, and so on. So this was Shrenika's theory. So, um, we kind of went through it. We kind of critiqued it as we went.
0: But he doesn't? He doesn't. Um, well, then,
1: so he finishes that, and then the next section, which we can get into tomorrow, is um, a Zen monk coming in and and um, checking out his understanding with his teacher. And the teacher says, that's Shrenika's view. <laughs> so this is first Dogen presenting Shrenika's view and then, And there's other... Um, I'll we'll bring tomorrow other views from this Mahapara Nirvana Sutra. has a chapter about Shrenika. And Prajaparamita Sutras have chapters about Shrenika and his views. So you can hear us a little bit more. He's, he's kind of the, the, the person who gets to be the, um, the wrong guy in the, in the sutras. There probably really was a person, I bet, in India called um, call because all these people were having these conversations with the Buddha uh, discussing these, these types of points uh, any other questions or comments before, before diving back into big mind.